Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. again what time is that well whatever time you're listening to us welcome to episode 24 of americans watching the footy for our round 10 preview for the first of the two-part sir doug nichols round i am benjamin castle here in south san francisco with my brother ethan man i remember the last time we recorded feels like it was just yesterday that's because it was sir that's because it was ah and hopefully it won't be more than a day between these two episodes releasing either to give all of you plenty of time to listen to both ahead of the start of this round's action. In addition to being the Sir Doug Nichols round, I look at round 10 as one that really starts off with a bang and then probably is going to get less and less exciting as it goes on. That seems to be the case a lot thus far this season. A lot of rounds seem to have been front-loaded. I get that the weeknight primetime slots are marquee, but I feel like there's also a way for things to be more evenly spread out, especially when this week, the Saturday, you're competing with election coverage. That means, hopefully, Watch AFL won't have 50 million commercials about how to fill out your ballot, because if you were watching what we were last week, I assume it was just the same commercials that they were getting on Fox footy in Australia. It was just every commercial break telling you how to fill out your ballot. It was interesting the first couple times because it's a little bit different than American elections, but after about the third or fourth, it got really irritating. We are the Castle Brothers and we approve this message. You know what else we approve of is actually having a good Friday night footy game because there are times this year when we haven't. The matchups have tended to be middle of the road at worst, but this is definitely one of the higher profile Friday matchups thus far. It's Carlton and Sydney at Marvel Stadium. That'll begin at 2.50 a.m. Pacific, 5.50 a.m. Eastern for American viewers on Friday, May 20th. That's a 7.50 p.m. local start in the eastern states of Australia. American TV, other than Watch AFL, this is on the... Pay Extra, Fox Soccer Plus channel, as are most of the games for this round. So if you are an American that still doesn't have Watch AFL, I think this is probably a pretty clear sign that if you're as invested into the game as we are, it is well worth your time and your money. This is the only matchup of the round of two teams currently in the top eight. Carlton sits in fourth at seven and two. Sydney is the best of the six and three teams, which puts them in fifth. These teams met just once last year, round 11 at the SCG. A game the Swans won by 22. And this is their only meeting this year as well. In fact, only two matchups this round will be repeated later on. Especially at this point, you'd think that those repeated matchups, most of them have already been played the first time. Though there's another outlier that we'll get to for the first time 
next round as well. It actually involves Carlton playing Collingwood for the first time then. Don't know why it's taking that long. But it's also taking a bit too long for us to get into some of the intricacies of the ends of the outs for this one. This is going to be the second of at least six weeks for the Blues, most likely without Harry Mackay. And it'll be the first of 10 to 12 for them without Zach Williams. Thank goodness he didn't tear his Achilles, but it's a high-grade calf injury that's going to keep him out for much of the rest of the home and away season. We thought Braden Campbell would be the one to come into the side for Sydney with James Robottom suspended, but Campbell is only an emergency while Colin O'Reardon draws it at fullback where he'll be playing alongside Patty McCartan, who will likely have to win a fair amount of marking contests for the Swans to succeed, and fullback Dane Rampey in the co-captain's 200th game. Michael Whiting thought that John Longmire would be apt to rest Josh P. Kennedy or Buddy Franklin this round, but they're both in. And having that big presence of Buddy could be a way that Longmire sees Sydney being able to potentially counter the production that Charlie Carnell has had the past couple weeks, or just take advantage of the fact that Mackay is out with their own firepower. Also important to note that Carlton will be coming off just four days rest. They played Sunday while the Swans played Saturday. We'll see if relative freshness may be a factor in that regard. Plus, the Swans had an easier time in their win over Essendon than Carlton did over Greater Western Sydney from a scoring and just physical standpoint because, my gosh, the Bombers cannot tackle. The biggest question I have for this game is, does Carlton's depth have what it takes to handle Sydney? Because we know that Carlton's best players are top-notch. We know that Patrick Cripps is phenomenal. We know that they have forward depth, what with the performances we've seen the last couple of weeks out of Charlie Carnow and Corey Durden. Do they have the defensive depth? Is Adam Saad able to play at that level? Because he's good at moving the ball out of the back end. How's he going to be in the actual defensive matchup when he's keep a man in front of him? That's another reason why I think having Buddy for those marking contests would be the best course of action for the Swans. It would allow them to test Saad, to test Young as he's coming back into the side. I think in that respect, just from a physical contest and height standpoint, that could be somewhere where Sydney could take advantage. Assuming Brody Kemp's in there again, I think he's going to have to really step up. I thought he was a bit of a weak spot last week in that win over GWS. And the thing with Sydney is they test your depth because they're so strong at so many different spots. They don't just have to rely on one standout. That's where your fifth or sixth best defender really needs to bring it in order to beat the Swans. Your fifth or sixth best forward needs to bring it in order to beat the Swans. We know that Carlton's got that forward depth, but do they have it at the other spots? And they also just need to manage their cha- and they also just need to manage their changes well because the Swans can make you run even more than the Blues can. And in that respect, maybe I get why Kennedy might be rested for this one just to conserve him down the stretch. I also think this is a game where Sydney knows that they're going to have the advantage in the hitouts. We've seen teams understand and adapt and say, hey, we're going to lose hitouts. We still need to win clearances. I want to see if Sydney can go into this game knowing that they're going to win hitouts and try to also win clearances with that and maybe do it by a pretty considerable margin. That's a spot where this game could really be decided. Plus, is going each team's way. I understand why the line is as close as it is. Currently, Bovada has Sydney at two and a half point favorites. I think the pendulum this game could definitely swing on clearance success. This is really where Sam Walsh will be in focus, along with, I'd say, probably Errol Golden and Caleb Mills, chiefly for Sydney. 
Mills has been racking up crazy stats all year. And I don't know who from Carlton is going to be able to run to that level. I think there's no question they've got some guys who can really tag. They've got some guys who can get physical. You know, Tom DeConing isn't the biggest, strongest guy when you look at him just by the eyeball test, but he's clearly got the strength to make big physical plays. I didn't realize how big Patrick Cripps was as well until this year. Last week, Lockie O'Brien gained a ton of ground. They could probably get something in the aggregate from him, Matthew Kennedy, but is it going to be enough? Also, this is the George Hewitt revenge game. Didn't think he would be a more impactful loss for the Swans than Jordan Dawson, but I would definitely argue that at this point. So I'd say that Carlton have more to prove than Sydney in the round opener. And I'd say that another dark blue and white team also have more to prove in their game in the early Saturday slot. Again, you've got two games going right up against each other, the same sort of two-on-two thing going on with the Saturday action. One of those is Geelong and Port Adelaide at the Cattery. That and one other game will be beginning at 8.45 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, 11.45 p.m. Eastern on the night of Friday the 20th. 1.15 p.m. South Australian Time for away viewers on Saturday the 21st and 1.45 p.m. local in Victoria. This one will be televised on Fox Soccer Plus. Geelong entering this game at 5-4. and four. They now sit in 7th. Port Adelaide up to 10th place. They are at 4-5. and five. This is our only finals rematch of the round. The teams met twice last year. Their one regular season meeting. The Thursday night round 13 opener in which Port Adelaide jumped out to an early 21-point lead. Then Geelong fired back and ended up winning 112-91. Things did not go so well for the Cats in the qualifying final where they got doubled up 86 to 43 and just played an all-around awful game. And these teams will match up at the Adelaide Oval in nine rounds time as well. So a double meeting for them again this year, only this time it's scheduled. Cats are favored by 18 and a half, which seems outlandishly high. I get how dangerous they are at home, but they've given me no reason to believe that they're going to completely crush a Port Adelaide team that's clearly better than the way they looked at the start of the year. Now, I think maybe some of the betters haven't realized that Port Adelaide aren't the same team that started 0-5. Maybe some of the betters are of the belief that playing at Geelong is just that much of an insurmountable task. But I think this line should be more around the 8-10 to 10 point range, not 18. Adding to that is that Port were really in no fewer than three of those five losses. They stuck with the Lions at the Gabba to open the season, always commendable. They were in showdown 51 the whole way, of course, and they surged in the second half against Carlton. But with the power and a rhythm now, especially in the forward half, it's more than fine for them to give Charlie Dixon another game of the reserves, especially with the Sandful having had a bye last weekend for the representative game against the Waffle. Port will be regaining Captain Tom Jonas and Trent Dumont, both of whom missed their thrashing of North in COVID protocols. For the Cats, starting to see more guys rounding into shape health-wise. Jed Buse will be back from concussion protocols. You bloody beauty. And Gary Rowan plays this week in the AFL after a couple of VFL appearances. Geelong's midfield struggled last week. They were getting spaced out a ton. They were looking slow. And that's where I think there's an argument to put Gary Rowan in that midfield spot, even though he's so good 
kicking in the forward 50. We've talked in past years before we had this show about how good the Cats are whenever he scores at least two goals. It's one of the things that I picked up on really quickly. And I think their winning percentage improves anywhere between like 20 and 30% when that happens. He's just one of those players who tends to really bring the team up with him when he has goal kicking success. Much like a couple other players we've seen this season makes me think of Max King a little bit at times. Obviously, very different players, but as go those players, so go the team quite often. So that create a bit of a forward crunch, or you can move him back to the midfield. Ryan Myers comes out of the lineup, which is frustrating after he finally got his first goal of the year, but still understandable. What I'd really like to see is for Luke Dollhouse to once again be the medical sub. He needs to be in that Toby Bedford, you're always the medical sub spot, because he's so good at it. There's a whole host of problems that goes with the medical sub rule the way it is, but it's not like it's changing any time this season. So if you can take advantage of it, go ahead and do it. And Dollhouse has proven that he can provide that late burst, that late speed that could help the Cats over the edge once again. It definitely did against Collingwood. However, Dollhouse has not been listed at all, with the likely sub being Cooper Stevens once more. We'll also note that illness made Patrick Dangerfield and Travis Boak Both questionable early in the week, but both seasoned mids are in their respective 22s. Who knows if Danger will actually suit up, though, because Chris Scott often makes last-minute changes to try and surprise his coaching adversaries. Maybe we're in line for another one this week. I think it is fair, though, to say that the Cats have more to prove, especially after last week, where the Saints, as you said, made them look old. It's not often the team with the better record is the one that has more to prove especially when they're favored like they are here. But Geelong really has two impressive wins so far. One was impressive because they played so poorly for the first three quarters. The other was impressive because it was against a really good Brisbane team. But at the same time, that was at home. Maybe you could say just from a margin standpoint that the round one win against Essendon was a third, but you can't compare just on a competition level in that regard. Meanwhile, Port have gotten a couple of decently impressive wins as part of their four in a row. And even if they don't get it done at Geelong, I don't think that's going to be a major setback to them. They should be able to take care of Essendon the week after that, and then they'll have Richmond after their bye. And that'll probably be a game that determines a lot more for them than this one will. For Port Adelaide, you mentioned how good their forward unit has been. I think we've kind of taken for granted because it's been such a constant what Allure Allure has been doing. And it's going to be really entertaining to see Allure on one side and Tom Stewart on the other. I think even though they'll rarely be on the same part of the ground, it'll be fun to measure how they do against each other. Although it's kind of convoluted because as I mentioned in our round nine recap, the better Stewart played, the worse the rest of the team was playing. Because each of those guys, the more they get tested, the more the rest of their team is struggling. So those stats could end up being misleading. That's going to be one of those matchups where the eye test is going to matter a lot more than the stats. Because if you're racking up a lot of intercepts in your own 50, that's because your midfielders aren't playing well, obviously. The midfield and the forward line success combined for Port Adelaide had me wondering where the hell Mark O'Connor is going to find himself. He could very well be put to task against the reigning Bradlow medalist, Ollie Wines, with how well he's been going ever since he returned from his AFib issue. But I'm thinking maybe Todd Marshall might be a more pressing concern with how accurate he's been kicking. Between Stewart and O'Connor, I think those two will have to really push around Marshall to prevent him from getting those marks. 
I was thinking maybe go in another direction, put him on Mitch Georgiatis, but I think Marshall would make more sense. I think it's going to end up being Wines, though, especially considering he gets pretty far forward. He gets a lot of shots on goal, so I would think it would make the most sense to go after him. And I guess then it would be more of a man assignment for Stewart on Marshall, maybe? I think you still let Stewart roam around, probably ask someone like Buse or Cole Jashin to handle that, and that's where those two are going to have to really bring it. Cole Jashley has had some very mixed results this season. I know you've been very critical of him the past couple. Port Adelaide is the sort of team where you're going to need your defensive depth to play well. So specifically, like I just mentioned, Hughes and Cole Jashney are going to have to do that. They don't just have one or two good forwards. They've got a whole bunch of them. So those are the two guys that I'm calling on to step up this week. It worked when I called on Mitch Duncan. I'm going to pretend he listened and heard it and took the challenge to heart. It worked when you challenged Stanley and Blitzovs at the start of the campaign. Hopefully this trend continues. Blitzovs should be an interesting one to watch as well. Was good outside the ruck, but with how well Sam Hayes has been going in there, could be a tough matchup for him in stoppage and center circle situations. One of the things that really bothers me about the scheduling for this round is that two of the three most compelling games are at the exact same time. One of those being the aforementioned Geelong Port Adelaide battle, the other being out in Ballarat at Mars Stadium, where the Western Bulldogs will be looking to win consecutive games for the first time all year. They'll be hosting the Gold Coast Suns in a game that somehow becomes super compelling. If you had looked at this one at the start of the season, you would have thought, maybe if you were optimistic about the Suns, you would have thought they would be around where they are, four and five, currently in 12th place. But I don't think most of us would have also had the Bulldogs at four and five. They currently sit in ninth. It's a 14% difference between the two teams. And I think that's emblematic of how the Suns have just really played themselves out of some games. While the Bulldogs have managed to stick around in most of their defeats. Like Geelong and Port Adelaide, this will be 8.45 p.m. Pacific, 11.45 p.m. Eastern on Friday the 20th. 1.45 p.m. local time in Victoria on Saturday the 21st. American viewers without Watch AFL can only get this on delay on Fox Soccer Plus, and that will be at 5.30 a.m. Pacific, 8.30 Eastern on the 21st. The Dogs and the Suns played twice last year, and the Dogs swept those meetings. In round five at Marvel Stadium, it was a 62-point thumping for the Bulldogs, and then at Metricon in round 18, it was a much closer affair, and the Suns had more scoring shots but the Bulldogs kicked far more accurately and won by 11. You know, one way to look at it with percentage is that teams are hanging around in losses. The other thing you could look at, though, is that they've found a way to lose games they should have won, such as when the Bulldogs had been at Ballarat earlier this year in that one-point loss to Adelaide, where they just couldn't kick straight at all. The wind was something of a factor, but it was mostly just shitty kicking. They're going to look to avoid repeating that fate and might be a little tough for them depending on the status of one Aaron Naughton. Naughton had some knee discomfort toward the end of the round opener against Collingwood last Friday. Looks like as of now, he should be able to go. But if not, who will take his place? Would you have Stephen Martin come back in to support Jordan Swede in the Rock against Jared Witts? Or do you decide to cut your losses there? and have more of a goal sneak in Josh Shackey, a player who we seemingly value more than the list management and the coaching staff at the Dogs with how little AFL action he's seen thus far this year. 
There's also an off chance they bring Jamara Hagen back in from the VFL. I think at this point, what Jamara needs is consistency. And I would say, unless there are really dire circumstances, it would be in the Bulldogs' best interest to have him in the VFL for the rest of the year, unless he really forces the issue and just flies way above everyone. Otherwise, you could set out a plan for him and say, hey, we want you in the VFL for the rest of this year, assuming we don't have an Eagles top-up situation. And then starting round one next year, we're going to have you in the AFL lineup full-time. I think that would be the best way to go about it. You mentioned the idea of cutting your losses against Wits. I think the best thing for them to do would be just have Sweet go up against Wits, have him win a few hitouts if you can, but focus more on the clearances, and then use that to try to get Bailey Smith to do his thing where he ushers play forward with his strength, whether that be through evading tackles or some of the long kicks he's able to send into the forward 50. The only question then becomes, who is he kicking to? Because we don't know Naughton's going to be there. We don't know which Bulldog forwards are going to give consistent performances. That's kind of been an issue for a while. Bonapelli started pretty well in his full forward spot, but he hasn't found the same goal-kicking touch yet that he did the first time he was up there. This is a game where I think he's going to really have to step up in that regard. And I'd like to see Jared Witts go against those guys in some marking contests just to disrupt them with his size. It's something that we were talking about in our last episode that maybe there could be an additional use for Witts outside of pure ruck work. He's not the greatest kick, but from size alone, he could do something akin to what we've seen from Asafa Radigalea at times at Geelong. That's exactly what I was advocating for the other day after watching him take a couple of pretty good contested marks. There are ways to impact the game if you can take marks, even if you're not a great kick for goal. And I just think he's been underutilized. Which is hard for me to wrap my head around considering how successful he's been in, but that success has been in a very narrow part of the game. We talked extensively about Mabby Archul last week, and deservedly so, but it was a good game for the Suns' defense. Charlie Ballard did some quality play. Stat-wise, it was a good afternoon for Sean Lemons. Even though he's listed as a full forward, Connor Butterick racks up some intercepts and gets himself involved all over the ground. And if he can keep doing his thing, I think the Suns can hang around. I just, you can never expect the Suns to turn in consistent performances week in and week out. They've managed to do it two weeks in a row. Do you see them doing it for a third? I'm going to be the cynic and say no, because I don't see them doing what's right in terms of the game plan here. Matt Rowell was very successful in being more active in the middle of the ground, being the good handballer that he is. But I have a feeling that they're going to try to use him to maybe try to go up one-on-one against Bailey Smith, and that would most likely fail. So you're saying they don't know that they must do what's right? Sure as Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus over the Serengeti? Above the Serengeti, you fuckwad! I did it! I got a music reference over you! First one ever! Well, regardless... Kilimanjaro doesn't do that. No, it it doesn't. It's not quite adjacent to the Serengeti. And that's why I don't even care for that line in the first place. It's a fucking terrible line in an otherwise amazing song. As for the actual footy that we were talking about, if the Suns do win this game or play well in a losing effort where they just get beat, you know, less that the Suns lose the game and more that the Bulldogs win it, it would be time to officially take them seriously. I think we can say unconditionally 
if the Suns win this game, no matter how they do it, it will be time to take them seriously because either they'll have played really well three weeks in a row or they'll have won despite a lesser performance against a good team. They would, as we've said sometimes, win a clunker. And any three-game winning streak is to be taken seriously, especially when it would be against these three teams in this hypothetical scenario. Hard to think that after two straight wins, I still think Stewart Dew is coaching for his life this round, but I think this is the round more than any that could determine his immediate future because I think teams are going to start acting pretty quickly with the first domino having fallen in Leon Cameron and a massive prize in Alistair Clarkson looming at the potential end of any coaching search heading into 2023. I think so long as they don't completely shit the bed, he'll have helped his prospects of staying at the helm. But if they do what they've done so many times and just completely get throttled, I think it would reflect that this team has so much potential, but they don't act on it consistently. And that indicates a need for a change upstairs. And it would make you wonder how much coaching actually played a role in the past couple rounds, especially with the adjustments that they made in adverse conditions last round. That could very much have been something that the players kind of did instinctively. And wondering if that could be the case again, if the wind wreaks havoc in the Central Highlands. One way or another, I think it's really hard to judge how this game's going to end up. The line is currently Bulldogs by 15 and a half. And to me, that's in the middle of this could be a really close contest or the Bulldogs could just completely wipe the oval with them. I would not touch this game as a gambler. So after those first three games, I think this round definitely does start to trail off. And that's sad because there is some definite intrigue in the later games, but I think the momentum really halts when you've got such a potential clunker as the standalone game this round. It's North taking on the renamed NARM football club, that's Melbourne, at Marvel Stadium. That will be the mid-afternoon slot in Australia, 4.35 p.m. in Melbourne on Saturday the 21st. For American viewers, that's 2.35 a.m. Eastern that day and 11.35 p.m. Pacific on Friday the 20th. This is another Fox Soccer Plus game. North sit at 1-8 with the 1 over barely a team. They're in 17th. Melbourne, undefeated, 9-0, first place. 9-0 for the second straight year. Last year, they lost in round 10. I don't see that happening this year. It would be, it would honestly be funny as shit if it did happen. Now, there is one stat that is in North's favor in that regard, and that is that they are undefeated against Melbourne in their eight matches at Marvel Stadium. They're 8-0 in that regard, and that's the only way they'll be 8-0 for a long time. I will add that the Sir Doug Nichols round uniforms that they've unveiled are also undefeated. They weren't undefeated against the Demons last year because they played them in Tasmania, losing by 30 at Blundstone Arena in round seven. That was actually a game where North had the lead for decent parts of the first half in a back-and-forth contest. That was Ben Brown's first game in the red and the blue, and it was fitting that it came not only against his own side, but back home outside of Hobart. But they pulled away in the second half and reminded us that they're Melbourne. North had the lead for over 60% of this game and was up by as much as 20, but really skidded to a halt in the second half. Health-wise, they had some excuses in their poor performance last week against Port Adelaide. They should be in much better shape this week with the return of Jason Horn Francis from hamstring tightness. 
Jai Simpkin had hamstring issues and should be back this week as well. They could at least look more like a, well, not quite complete team, but I guess the best way to describe it is they look more like the team that you would go out there with if you fired up AFL Evolution 2 and there were no injuries to deal with. And that's even more the case now that we know Tristan Jerry is back. Even with Todd Goldstein's skill, Jerry has been sorely missed because Callum Coleman-Jones has been a big step down in the ruck. Hugh Greenwood will also be back into the side, though Jaden Stevenson will be omitted for the second time this year. How many more wake-up calls will he need or get? More than anything, though, Jerry should help stabilize the best part of the ground for North, even if you can see that strength from miles away, and even with this week's matchup there. Something also has to be said about teams knowing what North Melbourne's strengths are and having the time to counter them because it's not like they're going to sneak up on you and beat you in too many other areas. And this week, it's not like the Roos come in with a real advantage in that aspect because they're going up against Max Gum and Luke Jackson. For their ins and outs, Norm are minus James Harms with a hamstring injury and minus last week's sub, Cade Chandler, after his two-game suspension which, if you listened to our previous episode, you would know I believe should only be one game. Here we are, though. Jake Melksham has been named to start on the bench for his second AFL game of the season. And guess what, Toby Bedford? You're probably the sub yet again. He's good at it. Why not? The line's been bouncing up and down a bit within a few points, but it looks like as of now, Melbourne or Narm are favored by a very nice 69 and a half points. Nice indeed. And to think that isn't the largest line that we've seen this season. Is there any way that you can see North having a respectable showing outside of a few individual players this round? I know we both really like Taron Thomas, and it seems like he's back up to full speed. Luke Davies-Uniak was a bright spot again. Cam Zerhar kicked a few goals, but was also inconsistent on his accuracy. Is there anything you can see in terms of whole team performance, the 22 or 23 as a whole that North could take away from here? I think if they can just avoid getting beaten on contested marks as much as they did last week, that would be a step in the right direction. It was an area where they seemed to struggle a lot against Port Adelaide. Yes, it's difficult without Ben McKay, but a good team effort can overcome a lot of that. There's a chance that someone like Josh Walker or Lockie Young gets forced out of the squad this week. Walker and Atu Bosan of Ulagi have both been thrown around by Riley Beveridge as possible guys to be removed. But if that group could just put up a better performance and hang in there, that would be a major step in the right direction. Don't forget, as always, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. You can find me at Castle Media. And you can find Brian Harambe, the footy cat, on Instagram at catnamedbrian. You can also find him sleeping next to my feet right now. You can find me at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter, but Ethan's cooler, and so is Grime. I did not write that script. He's ad-libbing this. He knows he sucks. Took you long enough to realize it. I suck. The West Coast Eagles suck. Correlation? Causation? Who knows? You know what else sucks is having two games at the exact same time, which we have twice on the Saturday of this round 10, the first of the Sir Doug Nichols rounds. Election night to boot. I would love to see if somehow, if you get crowd reactions during games correlating with the announcement of election results or something, I think that would be really interesting, really fun. Real quick tangent, the best crowd reaction to a political thing at a sporting event ever was, of course, 
the Mets-Phillies baseball game in 2011, when it was announced that American troops had finally caught and killed Osama bin Laden. John Cena's announcement at the WWE event that night was also pretty cool, but that's kind of been tarnished because he's a simp for Xi Jinping. And they're probably listening right now, so I might as well just say, what's up, Beijing? The marquee game of the round, that being Dreamtime at the G, but Adelaide and Sig Kilda are scheduled to bounce at the Adelaide Oval at the same time as that huge clash in Melbourne. 2.30 a.m. Pacific, 5.30 a.m. Eastern for American viewers on Saturday, May 21st. That's 7 p.m. local in Adelaide, 7.30 p.m. in the Eastern States. And oddly enough, it's going to be Adelaide St. Kilda that's the U.S. televised game out of those two. That'll be on Fox Sports 2. The Saints Center in 6th place. They are 6-3. and three. The Crows in 14th. They are 3-6. and six. While this matchup doesn't sound that appealing on the surface, especially considering the Crows' recent form, it is worth noting that their meeting last year was incredibly entertaining. They played in Cairns last year. It wasn't quite as sloppy as this year's Cairns game, but neither team kicked that accurately. The Crows ended up winning 66-60 on a great goal by Riley Philthorpe over the back of his head. Speaking of Philthorpe, he actually makes the team this round. We're going to claim credit for badgering the Crows about this for so long, even though we have absolutely no connection to any media outlet that would actually be able to raise questions about him. Phil Thorpe could and should be wearing multiple hats this round. He ought to be ruck support for Kieran Strachan, and with Elliot Himmelberg only listed as an emergency, Phil Thorpe also slots into the resulting opening at full forward. Looking forward to him seizing the opportunities that come his way. Lachlan Murphy also re-enters the side in favor of his first-name brother, Lachlan Scholl. For St. Kilda, Jack Steele and Jack Higgins will both be out this week. Steele likely out six to eight weeks, while Higgins is just in concussion protocol, so should be out just one week. Naziah Wankanee Miller returns for the Saints and will be in the starting 18. I'd love for him to have some runs with 200th gamer Brad Hill. Additionally, Marcus Windhager has been elevated from the sub role to the main bench. And that leaves a meta-sub opening for which the Saints could go in one of a couple different directions. You could bring up Mitch Owens from the VFL. You've had a lot of defenders play really well at the VFL level, but with how good the back six has been, the only way that would really work would be, I guess, to dress an extra defender, which is something they could do with someone out of Tom Highmore or Jaron Leader. And I think this would actually be a matchup where really stockpiling the extra defenders would make sense considering the strength of Adelaide's forwards, whereas defensively, the Crows don't pose much of a threat other than that one valiant showing against the Bulldogs. We'll note that Jordan Butts is going to be leaving protocols on Saturday morning, so he could figure in, but I wouldn't be shocked if he's left out for another week. Regardless of whether or not he's in, The fullbacks are going to have a tough task ahead of them if Max King actually remembers that he can lead to the ball. Last week, it wasn't King that made a huge impact. His presence was certainly important, but Patty Ryder's ability to go forward and impact the game was enormous. He was able to really get the better of Reese Stanley when Stanley was on him. Mark Blitzovs held his own, but Stanley really couldn't keep up with what Ryder was doing. Ryder is a more obvious choice to... Ryder, to me, is a more obvious goal kicker this round with potential to sustain success from the outing against Geelong. That's why I was really wanting to highlight Max. He's kicked both a goal and a behind in every round this year, and he just needs to be able to create 
better opportunities for himself. And I think that will increase his goal-kicking accuracy and in turn his confidence. Zach Jones played a monster second half last week. Curious to see how he follows up that act. Also wondering if there's any way at all the Crows can line up with Jade Gresham. St. Kilda favored by 18 and a half. I would go a little more. Even with this being at the Adelaide Oval, I just don't have much faith in the Crows at this point. It seems like they're on a similar trajectory to last season where they started off hot but couldn't sustain it. And that's a shame considering the individual players they have had going for them. Ben Keyes and Rory Laird have been massive in their clearance ability. Jordan Dawson can run anywhere and everywhere, but they just can't string together solid performances in all three thirds of the field. The other game going on at this time, the one that will probably have far more eyes on it, in person and over the air, should be one of the biggest crowds of the season, one of the best events of the year. It's dream time at the G with Richmond taking on Essendon. Back at the G for the first time in two years. Remember, they were in Darwin in 2020. That was a really special affair, and I'm glad they're going to be back there for the next two rounds after this. And then they sold out in Perth last year. So this is our first time actually getting to watch the Dreamtime match at the G. Now, the two versions of it that we've gotten to watch over the past couple years have been special in their own right. 2020 with Irving Mosquito playing so well. Missed that guy. 2021, both teams having such huge support in Perth, especially the Tigers and a lot of Indigenous players with ties to the Perth area and the entertainment surrounding the match seeing drummers and musicians playing live after each goal. It was a really cool, festive event, and I hope that that was just a taste of what we're going to get to experience Saturday night. Because to me, last year's Dreamtime match was about so much more than just football. It was you know, a three-hour-long celebration, and I hope that that's what we get out of this. And I would say that it was the same way in 2020, even with a smaller crowd, simply because they were playing in front of such a predominantly indigenous crowd in the top end. That game last year was a that game last year was a 39-point victory for the Tigers in round 12. As we already alluded to with the time of the Adelaide St. Kilda game, we'll be watching this at 2:30 a.m. East Coast of the US, 5:30 a.m. on Saturday, and it gets underway at the MCG at 7:30 p.m. If you want to watch this one live in the U.S. and you don't have Watch AFL, honestly, I'd consider getting a one-week subscription just for this. But if you're looking for it on TV and you happen to have Fox Soccer Plus, that's where you can find it. This will actually be the first of two meetings for these teams at the G this year. They'll also be closing out this season at the G, but that won't have anywhere near the festivity that this game will have. Unfortunately, Marlon Pickett, designer of the Tiger Sir Doug Nichols round jumper, will not play Saturday as he'll be serving a suspension. Richmond will also be sans Noah Balta, who injured his hamstring last round. That allows Josh Gibkiss to return to the fold after a stinted protocols, and Robbie Tarrant will also slot in at fullback. Additionally, Sarah Black mentioned that Jack Graham wasn't feeling 100%. He's currently named to the bench, but if Graham is out, it would likely be Thompson Dow to come up from the VFL after a convincing performance there. Notably, she does not predict Hugo Ralph Smith to be in the lineup this week, but I think he makes a compelling case, even though the team they've played the last couple weeks 
I understand why they'd want to keep that as complete as possible. I think Ralph Smith's ability to really push play forward with his quickness is something that could be especially valuable when you've got guys like Dustin Martin playing forward. For Essendon, Jai Caldwell, I would say, is somewhere between doubtful and questionable right now after suffering an AC joint injury last week. Callum Toomey thinks there's a chance Nick Bryan doesn't play this one. I would really like to see him in there again because as good as Toby Nankervis is, even though he's really the one guy that usually handles the ruck for Richmond, I like the idea of having both Draper and Bryan. I also just thought Nick Bryan, he wasn't just good in the center circle a couple weeks ago in that game against Hawthorne. I thought he was good all over the ground, and I'd like to see him stay in there because I think he's a lot more than just a ruckman. Same could be said for Ivan Soto, who, if Brian is in, would be his opposite second ruck. Soto seems to have really found his form both within and outside ruck contests. These past couple rounds had two goals and 25 hitouts last round, and hopefully he'll be able to continue that. Alec Waterman was a substitute last week, could find his way back into the squad. Maybe they go with someone like Kane Baldwin or Braden Ham. I think the final changes that Essendon do choose to make and how many they make will tell us what they thought about last week's loss to Sydney and kind of their perspective on their season overall. Will they look at the comeback against Hawthorne as just one great quarter or will they look at that as a real sign of progress? And if so, will they try to stay on the trajectory they showed in the last couple of weeks, even with the loss to the Swans. We'll be able to infer a lot from how many changes they make, at least if they choose to make a bunch of non-injury-based changes, that'll tell us something. Well, it looks like Brian has been named to the bench, with Tom Cutler the only pure omission for the Bombers. Devin Smith will also return to the fold. However, the bigger story for Essendon heading into Dreamtime is the retirement of one who announced that decision Friday afternoon. As Ethan and I have both mentioned, Walla was the first player we came to recognize between his name, his hair, and his plethora of big plays all over the Oval. His energy and impact will be missed, but we hope nothing but the best for him as he transitions into his post-playing life. We will surely talk more about McDonald Tipping Woody in our recap, but returning to the discussion on Essendon's list for this round, I think the lack of big changes may represent a desire for consistency as well as a hope that they might get back to what worked for them against Hawthorne. However, my concerns about their defense are far from dissipated. The good that they've had from the back line has been those players going forward, particularly Mason Redmond, and I think there's potential for this game to just really get out of hand with just how loaded Richmond's forward lines are. Tom Lynch leads the Coleman race with 32 goals. Dustin Martin seems to have found his groove in full forward. Jay Bolton can kick anywhere and everywhere, both for goal and to set up others. Morris Rioli Jr. has been a revelation, and I just don't know if Essendon can contain even two of those at a time, and I haven't even gone over all their threats. That said, this is a game that tends to find a way to be close, at least in the last couple of years, so I hope that keeps up. You just want this game to be entertaining more than anything. Yes, the Tigers have won seven straight meetings, but aside from a 2018 beatdown, most of these games have had a pretty respectable final margin. Hopefully this can be another game that keeps eyes on football through the fourth quarter instead of having people flip away and start looking at election stuff. Looking at the Sunday schedule, there's potential for the first game to be really good, 
But I think that the interest factor will likely increase as the day goes on. It opens with a game of two teams that have absolutely no aspirations for this year in the Greater Western Sydney Giants hosting the West Coast Eagles at the showground. That'll be at 9, 10 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time on Saturday the 21st, 12, 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time Sunday the 22nd. Viewers in Western Australia can tune in at 12, 10 p.m. It's a 2, 10 p.m. start in the west of the town. American viewers who want to watch this legally without Watch AFL will have to do so on delay at 3 a.m. Pacific or 6 a.m. Eastern on Sunday the 22nd. You mentioned when people in West Australia could watch this. That makes the assumption that there are Eagles fans that haven't thrown their TVs out the window yet this year. I haven't. But then again, I'm not in the West, and so I don't have to deal with the constant press around them. This game is between two teams that are combined 3-15. and 15. They sit in the bottom four on the ladder. GWS at 2-7, and seven, they're in 15th. The Eagles 1-8, and eight, they're in dead last. Their percentage has dropped below 50. And yet... I find this game oddly compelling. Maybe just because it's Mark McVeigh's first game. Maybe because this game could be so ugly if the Giants all of a sudden try to play with a new identity. Maybe because there's a good chance the Giants win and we get to clap along with big, big sound. Maybe it's because the entire GWS coaching staff for the rest of the year is basically just an Essendon reunion. And maybe because there's just some weird way that the Eagles might actually be able to pull through with the mess that's happening at GWS, maybe allowing West Coast to slip through the cracks. I don't think that's happening, though. James Hurd and Dean Solomon have joined McVay's staff at GWS for the time being. It's become clear that the league is not going to punish Hurd any further for his role in the supplement scandal. This is a trial run for not just McVay, but also for Hurd. And maybe for Solomon, and maybe other teams will keep their eye on how those three affect the game from a coaching standpoint, as that coaching carousel is already taking off. I think it's going to be very hard to judge on this one game alone, especially considering the competition. But that's a thread that should continue through the final 13 games for Greater Western Sydney. For the second year in a row, the only meeting between these teams is at Giants Stadium, GWS winning last year by 16 in round 10. With only the extended benches being named so far, who knows how many changes each team will actually make. We know Greater Western Sydney will make at least six. Jesse Hogan and Zach Sproul will return to their full forward line. Lockie Whitfield is injured, which helps make that possible. A shuffling of lines also helps bring Bobby Hill back into the starting lineup after a week as the sub. We know that Connor Stone and Finn Callahan are hurt, that Nick Haynes is sick, and that Cooper Hamilton and Lachlan Keith have been omitted, but we don't know who will round out the GWS list in their place. Josh Fahey and Jacob Ware could debut, but I more so want Jared Brander to find a way back in. He was an eagle through last year and never had a consistent spot, so hopefully McVay can give him that chance. Amazingly, the Eagles look poised to make fewer changes than their opponent. Two incidents that went to MRO saw Liam Ryan suspended and Luke Foley concussed, while Jamie Cripps is ill, everything makes for a more than welcome return for Andrew Gaff and Captain Luke Shuey, while that other spot remains up in the air. Zane True and Rhett Bazo have been named to the extended bench, and I'd be happy to see one of the two debut. Can the Eagles actually break 60 points? They haven't done that since round four against Collingwood. They've averaged 43 points a game over the last five rounds. 
And if there's a team that they could snap out of that funk against, this would be a likely one. I'm not saying they will do it. I'm saying that they certainly can, but they've got to do more than just score the first goal. I would like to, even though they're not my team, challenge one GWS player to really step up this week after being invisible for a while, and that's Connor Iden. He got off to a nice start this year on a defensive unit that otherwise struggled. The last couple weeks, he's been nearly invisible. I want to see him really bring it this week, assuming he's not a surprising omission or something. And in that same third of the field, I'd like to challenge Jack Darling to actually be able to consistently mark and score. That's going to be necessary, especially with Josh Kennedy likely out for another week if the Eagles are going to get anywhere near victory on this one. This could be a monster game for Toby Green. What can the Eagles do to slow him down? Slowing Toby down would require the Eagles defense as a whole, not just the main interceptors, but the entire unit to step up a notch. Liam Duggan and Jermaine Jones, among others, need to work to limit Toby's time at the forward 50. And if they could do that, hopefully the backs who are decently taller than Toby can have an easier time defending when he does get into the arc. Would look for Alex Witherden to have a big game if that's the case. I still think we're going to learn more about the Giants than we are the Eagles because I just think the Eagles are more of an established quantity at this point of the season, and that quantity is a very low one. While the Giants are going to be reset in some ways, I think, with Mark McVay taking over, and between this round and the next, I think we're going to start seeing the direction that he and his coaching staff are wont to take. Giants are favored for this one by 39 and a half. Sad that this has been the closest line the Eagles have had in a while. I would probably set this line a little bit lower, but this is mostly appropriate. The more I think about it, the more I think a number closer to 39 and a half is more appropriate than something in the low 30s. Well, I wouldn't touch the Eagles this year with a 39 and a half foot pole, so in that respect, I like the number. The middle game on Sunday... Hawthorne hosts Brisbane at Utah Stadium in Launceston. These are two teams trending in opposite directions, but the Hawks won when the teams met at this stadium last year, and they get a huge boost this week in the return of not just one of their best defenders, but one of the most dynamic players in the entire competition. When this one gets underway, it'll still be Saturday night on the West Coast of the U.S., 10.20 p.m. for us. On the East Coast, it'll be Sunday at 1.20 in the morning. And whether you're watching this in Queensland, Victoria, or in person in Tasmania, it'll be getting underway at 3.20. Like last game, this will be a delayed broadcast on Fox Soccer Plus in the U.S. at 6 a.m. Pacific, 9 a.m. Eastern on Sunday the 22nd. Hawthorne enter at 3 and 6 in 13th after starting off hot but flaming out in the fourth quarter multiple times before having a solid fourth quarter last round if only they hadn't completely fallen apart in the latter portion of the second quarter against Richmond. Meanwhile, Brisbane are 8-1 in second place after easily taking care of Adelaide last round. Brisbane's lone loss came to Geelong. Meanwhile, the Hawks improved to 3-2 when they beat the Cats on Easter Monday. They haven't won since. They did win when the teams met last year, as I previously alluded to, and it was a game in Launceston. One that was originally scheduled for the MCG got moved around. Hawks ended up winning by 12, which put the Lions in the spot where they needed to pull off that dramatic surge in round 23 to earn the top four spot that they ultimately did nothing with. 
I'll just cut to the chase. Ethan was hyping up the return of Chanquil Jaff. He's been missing the past four rounds, and his absence has shown each and every time. The Hawks have still been able to create, but it's been much harder for them to do so. It's also been a lot harder for them to stop anybody, and considering how loaded Brisbane's forward group is, and how much better things look for Charlie Cameron with a healthy Eric Hipwood next to him, CJ's return could not come at a better time. Looks like the Hawks will also get Tom Mitchell back. He was simply listed as being managed last round, but it seems that he was ill. Why didn't they just say that to begin with? I do not get it. While getting CJ back is a huge plus, they do lose Jack Gunston. He suffered an ankle ligament injury last week and could miss as many as six weeks, hopefully less than that. Between Gunston and a couple other outs, including Ryan Myers' friend James Warple, so neither of them will feature this round then. A spot may open up for 2021 draftee Ned Long to debut for the Hawks. He's on the extended bench. Meanwhile, we initially thought Brisbane would be able to keep the same lineup from last week, but Marcus Adams has entered COVID protocols. With Harris Andrews returning to fullback, a forward spot opens up for Ryan Lester, while the sub role is wide open. I would love for footy vlogger Mitch Robinson to get a chance, whether on the bench or as a sub in his native Tasmania. Either way, this looks like a game where the Hawks are going to need to be able to get going in transition like they've done with CJ in his prior appearances. Without him, it's definitely been an element of their game that's missed. They've still been able to get off to hot starts, but they haven't been able to kind of whip teams in transition and kind of catch them flat-footed, which is especially important when you consider that as poorly as they've done in hitouts and clearances in the last few weeks... It's going to be even worse against Oscar McInerney. Big O and Darcy Fort, who has been admirable at times as a second ruck as well. Going to be a very tough task for Max Lynch there. And that means that the Hawks are really going to need to make it count on the ground. As much as they should try to catch the lines in transition, though, they also still need to be able to move better once they've decreased the tempo. And I've noticed that's a spot where they've been struggling. And that's a sign to me of a team that hasn't learned that way to win yet. Seems like it's part of the growing pains for Sam Mitchell in his first year at the helm. I'd like to see the Hawks try to make a substantial visible change to try to combat their terrible fourth quarters, whether that be managing their interchanges differently, altering the pace of the game, something that the viewers can notice. They may not figure out on the first try how they're going to play better fourth quarters, but at least give off the impression that you're doing something to try to fix it. Because as much as I've liked Mitchell's coaching, I haven't seen a lot of different approaches to try to fix this fourth quarter problem yet. And it's something that isn't just going to go away by itself. We'll note that they did have a much better fourth quarter last round, but that was only after they had lost energy going into the end of the first half. Catching a second wind is great, but it's better if you don't have to rely on that second win and if you can manage your first better. Let's also remember that that game was largely over by that point. I want to see them play a good fourth quarter in a game that's still up for grabs, which they haven't done since round five. The Lions are favored by 22 and a half. In past years, one may think that Hawthorne playing at Launceston may play to their advantage. But as we saw in the Anzac round, Playing on a longer ground ended up tiring them out with the fast pace at which they like to play, and I'm fearful that we may see that yet again here. 
The final game of round 10 is, as many final games of rounds are, in the West. Optus Stadium, Sunday afternoon footy, because I guess Sunday night footy just isn't a typically common thing outside of holiday weekends. I think they need to become more American with that, but I don't really have a lot of influence there right now. Fremantle hosts Collingwood. This one gets underway 20 minutes into American Sunday for those of us on the West Coast of the U.S. If you're on the East Coast, it's at 3.20 in the morning. If you're watching from Victoria or anywhere else in Eastern Australia, it'll be at 5.20. And if you're in Perth, that game gets underway, as so many of the others do, at 3.20 local time. And if you're watching in the U.S., this one will be available on Fox Sports 1. They've got what could be a pretty compelling matchup available for just about the entire nation to see. Fremantle are 7-2. and two. They're in third place on the ladder, but they completely shat the bed last week against Gold Coast, scoring just two points in the middle quarters despite having way more inside 50 entries. They just simply could not make their chances there matter, whether that was on set shots or the shorter kicks that set those up. Meanwhile, Collingwood are 4-5. and five. They are in 11th having lost to the Bulldogs in last week's round opener, so a longer rest for them heading into this one. Magpies have lost 5 of 7 in all. They lost to the Dockers last year in round 15 by 12. That was a game played at Marvel Stadium. I think it's pretty clear with how poorly they played last week. This will be a game where Fremantle really wants to come out and make a major statement. They'll be able to sit on last week's stinker for an entire week. More than that, in fact. And should be ready to go with a much healthier group. First off, Sam Switkowski will be back. That alone will help the offense. Michael Walters is expected back from health and safety, or we can just call it COVID, COVID protocols. And they'll be wearing uniforms that he designed. He is their first active player to design a Doug Nichols uniform. Excited to see that one in action. I think it's one of the better ones. Spoiler alert, after we've seen them all in action, we're going to rank all 18. Look forward to that in the coming weeks. But with Switkowski and Walters back, Justin Longmuir is going to be back into the happy situation of having too many good players to choose from. You could see Neil Erasmus and Josh Tracy could be removed for the lineup. And all that could happen without even bringing Jai Amos back in. He didn't play last week, considering how well he played his first time out. Maybe they've got more reason to bring him in there. I think overall, though, this will be a way for the Dockers to gauge how much the four players who came back from COVID last week were impacted by their illness. They were visibly slower and less put together side. And there's been a lot of talk about how difficult that immediate return from COVID has been. Now with those four players having another week behind them, I think we'll better be able to judge Fremantle as a whole and whether last round was a blip on the radar or something more significant. Collingwood were without Jack Ginnivan and Scott Pendlebury last week due to non-COVID illness, and they're likely to return this time, and they might make three more ins with that, if not more. Jamie Elliott makes an earlier-than-expected return from his AC joint injury and rejoins the side after missing just four rounds. Most intriguing to me and likely to you as well, Ethan, because we're Seppos, and you now know that that's not an insult to us. Mason Cox may very well make his way in as a second ruck ahead of Aiden Begg. Mason belongs in the ruck, and I don't know why he wasn't put there beforehand at the AFL level. I thought he was just really poorly used in the Brisbane game, 
I get what Craig McRae was going for with loading the forward line with talls, but it just didn't allow Mason or the other talls to operate nearly as well. We do know that Jack Madgen is going to be out for a while with a shoulder injury that he suffered in that loss to the Bulldogs. And that's a really tough loss for them because it just puts even more pressure on Darcy Moore to go all the way back when he's best suited as more of a roving halfback. I think that Madgen has been a bit undervalued by Collingwood's staff. And now that he's out, it's just going to expose their defense even more. Fremantle are favored by 24 and a half, which seems a little bit high considering A, the Dockers have had times where they've struggled to score. And B, Collingwood will be playing with a healthier team than they've had for a while. But I'll ask this, and I ask this about most Fremantle games. Can Collingwood's defenders handle the Fremantle forward pressure? That was why I brought extra attention to Jack Madgen being out. Because without him, I think it's going to be much tougher for their entire unit. Even with Pendlebury back, and even if Fremantle are still at full strength or full health, it's going to be hard for Collingwood to contain them for. 80 minutes. I don't think motivation is ever a concern for teams playing against Collingwood. This could have been a difficult spot for Fremantle with the huge game against Narm looming next round, but considering they're coming off a loss, I think that makes it a lot easier to get up for this game. So I don't think we have to worry as much about Fremantle being flat. I think both teams are going to really bring it. This should be a fun way to cap off the round. We hope you enjoy round 10, the first installment of the Sir Doug Nichols round for the season. We're both looking forward to it. I think after a couple rounds without any really crazy down-to-the-wire finishes, I think we're due for a couple of those. I think we may even get one as soon as this Friday night. Hopefully throughout the round we'll have a couple great down-to-the-wire games, another game where we're left completely shocked by the outcome, like we had last week with Fremantle against Gold Coast. You can do it, Eagles! And after all that goes down, be sure to come back to us once again as we recap round 10 with what will be our 25th episode of Americans Watching the Footy. That's almost 100! Between now and then, follow our thoughts on the round and all things AFL at Americans Footy on Twitter. I personally am at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter. I am at Castle Media. That's K-A-S-S-E-L-M-E-D-I-A. And Brian Harambe the Footy Cat is on Instagram, not Twitter, at Cat Named Brian. All right, have a good footy.